like to speak this morning on the subject, a good man lost, a bad man saved. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Beginning at verse 9, the scripture says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. In this passage of Scripture, I've entitled, A Good Man Lost, A Bad Man Saved. But before we get into that, a little bit of introduction. In this chapter, Christ gave four lessons on prayer. The first eight verses deal with a needy woman who would not go away. Verses 9 through 17 deal with a sinful man who went away justified. Verses 18 through 34, a rich man who went away sad. And verses 35 through 43, a blind man who went away with Jesus. In the four areas of prayer, we see persistent prayer in that first section. We see repentant prayer in this second section. We see ignorant prayer in the third and confident prayer in the fourth. So if you ever want to spend time reading about prayer, look at these four passages in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke to get a better understanding of what our Lord taught concerning that subject. But the story of our text begins simply enough. Verse 10 reads, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The setting for this parable is at Israel's most holy site, the temple. The devout observed three prayer times during the day. The first was nine in the morning, the second was noon, and the third was at 3 p.m. Prayer was believed to be especially effective if it was offered in the temple. For that reason, many people went to the temple during these three times of prayer to be in the courts and make their pleas known to God. Jesus told of two men on opposite ends of the social spectrum that did exactly that. They went to pray. The first was a Pharisee who was a respected religious member in the most honored social group of the day. And then the other was a tax collector who belonged to one of the most hated professions possible for Jews. My, what opposite stood in the temple that day during that particular hour of prayer both the cream and the dregs of human society. One famous for his righteous lifestyle and the other infamous for his corrupt lifestyle. The one was looked upon with respect and the other was hated by all. Now the intended contrast our Lord gives here is evident. 
Josephus says of the Pharisees in general in his book Jewish Wars, the Pharisees were a body of Jews known for surpassing the others in the observance of piety and exact interpretations of the law. They were the most highly esteemed group in the Jewish society. No Pharisee would ever sell out his people for gain. Like everyone else, they too were victims of the tax collectors. You could count on a Pharisee to love the law and attempt to uphold it on every hand. So when Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees, because of their zeal for the law, rejected him being their Messiah because they refused to believe this servant would be the one who would one day sit upon the throne of David. We, of course, understand they missed out on one half of the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the the stream of prophecy that foretold of him being a suffering servant, and then you had the stream of prophecy that foretold of him being the reigning king that he would be. Well, they rejected that one line of prophecy, and as a result, their zeal led them to oppose Jesus Christ on every hand. They did it because they were committed to the law of God, but they misunderstood much of the word of God, and therefore missed out on the opportunity. Now, considering the publican, the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible writes this, Rome imposed taxes on its conquered peoples, but the collection of those taxes was delegated to private Roman contractors known as tax farmers. They then employed Jewish underlings to do their dirty work. These tax collectors received their pay based on whatever extra they could extort from their fellow Jews. Such tax collectors were considered monsters, and in fact some were. They were religious and political traitors in the minds of the Hebrews and considered utterly despicable. They were disallowed from public office and were barred from giving testimony in court. They literally were the outcasts of society. So again, two extremes, if you will. Men from opposite ends of the social and religious spectrum. You have these two individuals. And Jesus goes ahead and uses them for this time of teaching on the subject of prayer. And by the way, before we go any further, the mere thought of a publican praying in public was reprehensible to the people. They just couldn't understand how somebody would have the nerve to stand in public and pray, being one of these tax collectors. But it's interesting, as Jesus starts out in verse 9, notice this with me, he directs this parable to self-centered people and starts by identifying three ways in which that is evident. By the way, a parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. So he's using the example or the illustration of a Pharisee and a publican to get across his message concerning those who are self-centered. And we see that in verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. The three ways in which he identifies their being self-centered is they trusted in themselves, meaning they were self-sufficient. These are people who have no need for God in their lives. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. 
1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand to take heed, lest he fall. Jesus also points out they were self-righteous, for he said that they were righteous. The self-righteous, different from the self-sufficient, in that they are interested in God, but they work and do good in order to find favor and to gain God's blessing in their lives. They believe their good works are what make them good and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Galatians 2.16 states, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. The third thing he points out about them in verse 9 is their self-serving. It says they despise others. That word despise. It means to count as nothing or as insignificant. To treat others with scorn. These are the people who both feel and act as though they're better than others. They ignore, neglect, belittle, and speak down to those who are the poor, the downcast, the derelict, the unemployed, the uneducated, or the uncouth. And yet we're reminded in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught those things which are. Thank God he doesn't overlook those who are considered to be in the lower level of society. There are many countries who have specific, specifically identified layers or levels of people in society. Thank God that Jesus loves everyone. He died for all. I was passing a car the other day, and, and again, I realize for many this is old news, but it had a, a thing on the black that said, Black Lives Matter. And yes, that is true. But beloved to God, all lives matter. Color, race, creed, language, culture, country of origin, none of those matter in the eyes of God. And that's the message our Lord is trying to get across here in this passage of Scripture. So it is these people to whom Jesus directed this parable. He both appeals to and warns the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, and the self-serving with this simple illustration. And we're going to see what he says here in this passage of Scripture by looking at these two men. Notice the prayer of the religionist and then the prayer of the repentant. First, in verses 11 and 12, we have the prayer of the religionist. We start out in verse 11 saying, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That's an interesting statement. I personally believe that all the Word of God is written according to God's divine plan. I don't believe there are things that are left out that God wanted in here. I don't don't believe there are things added to Scripture that don't belong there. You see, the Scripture tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that, but all Scripture, I believe every word in the Bible is important and it's there for a reason. So read with this with me again, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. What an interesting note. Standing was the posture of public prayer in that day. But notice this man didn't pray to God according to Jesus' observation and instruction. He prayed with himself. We pray to himself. 
He was speaking only with himself and perhaps such that others could hear as they passed by. As far as God was concerned, no prayer was being offered to him. There was no true worship, no personal communication with the Lord. And sad to say that's the case with many professing and some Christians today who don't realize the importance of communing with the Lord rather than trying to impress others around them. Jesus declared in John chapter 4 verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That doesn't leave room for show. That doesn't leave room for self-praise. That doesn't leave room for putting ourselves above everybody else. God expects us to come to him with a spirit of humility and submit to him. Matthew 6, 7. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. One of the most effective prayers in the Bible was just a matter of a few words. When Peter stepped out of the boat at the Lord's bidding, when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter says, well, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. The Lord said, come on. <laughs> he hopped out of the boat, started walking on the water. He was thrilled, but all of a sudden, what happened? He began to sink. Can you imagine what would happen if Peter had said, O Lord God, most noble creator of heaven and earth, I beseech thee on behalf of the forefathers that thou hast blessed in days past, and I beseech thee on the the word of your scripture today. God, I'm calling upon you and asking you, Lord, that you would bestow your goodness upon me and help me in this hour of need. As I find myself sinking from ankle to knee to hip, asking thee, God, that you would bestow your goodness upon me. He'd have been sucking water pretty quickly. What did he say? Lord, help me! The prayer from the heart of a man or a woman is what catches the ear and the heart of God. This Pharisee, he missed that point. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Prayer is meant to be communion with the Lord, not to try and impress everyone around us. True prayer is always offered to God and God alone. The story is told of a cynical New Englander who once described a, a fellow parishioner's prayer as the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. We need to be careful to make sure our prayers are offered to the Lord. And we're not praying just to impress others. But he prayed. He praised. Verse 11 also says, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, as extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. The religionists thanked God for making him what he was. He was proud to be a Pharisee. It was a respected position. And in being a Pharisee, he was grateful that he had kept himself from public sin. He points out the fact that he wasn't an extortioner. He wasn't involved in dealings with others by taking advantage of them. He wasn't unjust, meaning he was always fair and treated others right. He wasn't an adulterer, meaning he was faithful and moral, never straying in his behavior. And may I say, these are all commendable traits. There's nothing wrong with someone who is able to stand and say, God's kept me from sin. 
God has protected me. God has preserved me. That's not being self-righteous. It's praising the Lord, saying, God, thank you that you've worked in my life and kept me from certain areas of sin. Unfortunately, a lot of us can't say that about our past. Things in days of old. But thank God when we got saved, he made us a new creature. Scrubbed away the sin. Made us white and pure in his sight. Placing upon us robes of righteousness. And we are now new creatures in Christ. And oh, it is our responsibility to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That James tells us how we need to live pure and godly lives. But he thanked God he had been kept from public sin. But he also thanked God that he had been favored over others. This is where the wheels come off the cart. Because he says, I'm not, not as extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. He believed God did not have his hand upon that publican because he was living the life of a sinner. So he thanked God that he wasn't like this poor, lowly, dejected individual. You see, the attitude was, and by the way, it was prevalent in this day, I am good, therefore God loves me. But he does not love someone who is not good. They believed, I am healthy, so God cares for me. But this person is not healthy, so God doesn't care for him. I am employed, so God provides for me. But this person is not employed, therefore God does not provide for him. That's a very self-righteous and self-serving attitude. God chooses to bestow his goods upon us according to his good pleasure. This Pharisee's whole attitude was typical of Phariseeism at that time. There's a recorded prayer of a certain rabbi that goes like this. I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast put my part with those who sit in the academy and not with those who sit at the street corners. For I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to the words of the law and they to vain things. I labor and they labor. I labor and receive a reward. And they labor and receive no reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they to the pit of destruction. Uh, Again, a self-serving outlook toward others. It's on record that Rabbi Simeon Ben-Jokai once said, If there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are these two. If there is only one, I am he. You see, pharisaical people think a lot about themselves and little of others. One of the biggest problems with Jesus' listeners, though, comprehending what he was saying, you see, not all of his messages were easily received. One of the problems that he had in dealing with people is that those Jewish individuals who are watching and listening, they thought the Pharisee was right. Their attitude was the publican, you know, he's scum. He's a lowlife. He deserves everything bad that comes to him. The Pharisee, he stands before God. Everything's going good in his life. He is right. They didn't understand Christ was trying to get to the heart of the matter and get past the surfaced issues that they were looking at. The first hearers of this parable didn't think the Pharisee was boastful, but rather was grateful to God for his piety. 
Isn't that typical of many today who are, who are impressed with a superficial religion, a surface piety, or a selective Christianity? We ought to be thankful for God's grace in our lives, but there still needs to be the attitude, there but for the grace of God go I. A life that finds security in comparing him or herself with others is deluded. You understand it's entirely, utterly unbiblical to do so. 2 Corinthians 10.12, write this down and make note of this. 2 Corinthians 10.12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. What is Paul saying there? What's the message the Holy Spirit has for God's children? When you look at somebody else, don't think you're so much better than them because you appear to be more spiritual, more obedient. You know more of the Word of God. You, you tend to be more faithful in services. You give more. You pray more. You see, if I start looking at you and comparing myself to you, I might start, might start feeling pretty good about myself. But when I stand next to the Lord Jesus Christ and see who, He who is absolutely perfect, when I stand next to He who is wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, I have a much better understanding of myself. Don't be guilty of comparing yourself to others and thinking you're doing really good because you're better than he or she whom you're standing next to. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, when he said, For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. He goes on to say, the good that I would, I do not. Evil that I would not, that I do. He said, I struggle with the flesh every day. Choices I make. Some are good, some are not so good. Jesus warned us, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Someone has said the smallest package you will ever see is a man wrapped up in himself. The Pharisee, he prayed, he praised, he promoted. I have to move quickly here. Verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He listed two very positive and worshipful acts, fasting and tithing. Now he fasted twice a week. The Jewish law prescribed only one obligatory fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But those who wished to gain special merit fasted also on Mondays and Thursdays. And it's interesting because Mondays and Thursdays were typically the market days when Jerusalem was the fullest. So they would show up at the market area on Mondays and Thursdays, and they would fast. They'd put on their old long faces and appear in disheveled clothes, and that way they had a big audience. A lot of people to notice they were fasting. And then they tithe. He said, I tithe on all I possess. He tithed not only on his income, which we should, but he tithed also on what he possessed. The Levites were to receive a tithe of all of man's produce. But this Pharisee tithed on everything, 
even things there was no obligation upon which to tithe. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. This man took it a step further and tithed on all he possessed, not just his increase. Well, that's pretty good. Every Jew is required by the Levitical law to pay three tithes of his property. One tithe for the Levites, one for use of the temple and the feasts, and one for the poor of the land. He fasted and he tithed. But he made sure people knew what he was doing. Kind of like the preacher who once said, I have a great message on humility. I'm just waiting for a crowd big enough to preach it to. You know, we need to be careful. When we're doing things to be seen of others, we're missing the boat. Someone has said, what one does for the Lord is not an indication of how one is doing with the Lord. My walk with God is not evidenced in, in, entirely by what I do publicly. I think all of us have been around long enough. We've learned to put on a pretty good face in public. We can put on a pretty good show when we need to. You ever been on your way to church? You and your spouse were just going at it, arguing, fussing, you know, unhappy about something. But when you pull into the church grounds, ooh, it's all smiles and grins. You know, hey, we got to look good. We're going into church. Now, maybe you haven't done that, but... We need to be careful. This attitude that how you see me is how God sees me is incorrect. God sees the heart. That's why David said, search me, O God, know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Oh my, if only we'd understand. God sees the heart. The Pharisee publicly, outwardly lived for the Lord, but he didn't personally know the Lord. Now quickly, look with me at verse 13. We see the prayer of the repentant. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Three things briefly about his prayer. How he felt about others. The publican standing afar off. He didn't place himself in the middle of the crowd. He didn't place himself around a large number of people. No, he got off by himself. He was a man whom I believe our Lord was intending us to understand. He was ashamed and embarrassed by his sin. And he knew others were ashamed of him. And as a result, kept his distance. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Remember Peter's words when he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The publican had a pretty good idea of where he stood with God. But not only that, how he felt about himself. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast. He felt he was unworthy to face God. He lifted his heart, but not his head. He stood humbled before the Lord, weighed down by the burden of sin, and cried out to God. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was unworthy to receive the Lord's merit and favor. And he stood before God as one recognizing 
his sin. Ezra 9, 6, we read, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. Psalm 38, verse 4, For mine iniquities are gone over my head, as in heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Oh, our sin ought to break our heart. For it is that sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Thankfully, those sins are forgiven. And every one of us who are saved are assured a home in heaven, knowing that our sins were judged at Calvary. But oh, how it ought to break our heart when we fall into the trap of committing trespasses against our Lord. And notice the third thing, how he felt about God. Not only about how he felt about others, himself, but God. The last part of verse 13 saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here you have it. The sinner crying out for mercy. The word mercy means to be gracious, kind, or gentle. This man recognized he deserved the anger, wrath, and judgment of God. But he begged God for forgiveness. Thank the Lord for everyone here today who at some point in your life saw yourself lost and on your way to hell and asked God to forgive you, to save you, to make you a new creature in Christ. He cried out for mercy. Luke 1.50, Scripture tells us, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Two ends of the spectrum. Pharisee and publican. Respected and revered. Despised and rejected. But our Lord said of him, he went home justified. He went home forgiven that day. The Pharisee used others as his standard for measuring righteousness, the tax collector used God for measuring his righteousness and as a result received mercy from above. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad this morning salvation isn't dependent upon what we do to impress God, how we look in front of others, whether or not we've called out to him and trusted him as our savior. I close with this illustration. One of the most well-known figures from the Spanish-American War was Clara Barton. She was a school teacher who traded in her books for a nurse's gown and when the Civil War broke out, spent many days working on the battlefields attending to the wounded on both sides of the line. She later helped organize the Red Cross organization that's still going on today. But while working in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, she faced an American group of troops who badly needed supplies and food. Their commander, Teddy Roosevelt, future president of the United States, asked Clara Barton for some food and offered to pay for it out of his own pocket. She denied his request and told him he couldn't buy any food or supplies. He tried reasoning with her over and over, but she wouldn't have anything to do with it. She then explained, You cannot buy these supplies for your troops, Mr. Roosevelt. They are not for sale. 
If you want them, all you must do is ask. Salvation is not for sale. It's a free gift to whosoever may call upon the Lord. You see, many today view salvation the way Teddy Roosevelt viewed those foods and supplies, but believing they required a price. Well, a price was paid on Calvary for our salvation, but it was paid by the Lord. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Just as Clara Barton's offer of aid was free to anyone who asked, salvation today is freely offered to anyone who trusts in him. For the scripture declares, but as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. I trust today. You know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I trust as well. We who do know we are saved are living for the Lord and seeking to be a witness that others might come to know that great truth.